and that we find ourselves not objects of your wrath, but objects of your mercy, how great you are to call us out of the mire and clean us and give us new hearts that we can worship you, how good you are. Father, we come before you this morning and we lift our needs to you. Lord, we thank you for uh, what you're doing amongst us and that you're using us for your glory. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us and multiply us and send us out that, Lord, you would use us for your glory, that it would not be said of us that it could be explained in some human way, but that you indeed have worked in and through us. Father, we don't just lift up ourselves, but other local churches. We thank you for Friendship Baptist Church this morning here in our county in Jefferson. We ask that you would be with them. We lift up Pastor uh, Ken Jones to you. We pray that you'd be with him. Thank you for uh, his work as an interim there in that church. We would pray that you would continue to work and sanctify your people. Lord, thank you for the staff there. Uh, Jeff and Carrie Cotton and others, Lord, that are serving, Lord, that you would uh, continue to lift them up and build them up and encourage them. Father, we lift up our uh, sister churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. We lift up Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mebbin and uh, Grace Baptist Church in Taylor's, our, our nearest churches, Lord, in the Reformed Baptist Network, that you would be with them. Lord, we're excited about what you're doing in the network and that you're bringing uh, possibly more churches in our region into that network this year. And we ask for your help um, and that you would strengthen these brothers and sisters in their gospel labors. Father, we thank you for answered prayers uh, this week uh, in our nation. Uh, we know that, Lord, we are worthy of your judgment uh, for the things that we stand for and allow in this land. But we're surprised by your mercy. And we thank you for uh, this uh, work and this um, uh, just answer to prayer uh, for uh, Roe versus Wade being overturned. Lord, we pray for uh, churches. We pray for the pregnancy centers and other groups that are outspokenly pro-life, that you would protect them, and Lord, that you would encourage them, that Lord, you would give wisdom to the states that have to make decisions now, and Lord, that uh, Lord, you would let this be uh, an idle, toppling time in our nation, that if you would be so kind to bring repentance and revival, oh Lord, may we be ready for it. And uh, Lord, that we would um, welcome that and pray for that. So Father, we thank you for these things that uh, are gifts to us uh, and an encouragement. Father, we pray that you would show mercy upon those who argue for things that they do not understand. And they, we know that they don't know that because they don't know you. And so we ask for their salvation, Lord, and repentance and change of heart. Father, we uh, thank you for what you're doing in our world, that we can trust you uh, in all these ways. Uh, Lord, we pray for Afghanistan. It experienced a tragic earthquake this week. We pray that you would be with those. We ask that your church would rise up and minister to the needs of those who are grieving, that you would turn many hearts to you. Father, we lift up the needs of Burma as well and ask that you would be with your people there, that you would guard your persecuted church, and Lord, as many uh, suffer at the hands of unjust leaders, that Lord, you would work your sanctifying work uh, in your people and give them strength to stand. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers and that we can lift our needs to you. We know that there's many needs. We continue to lift those who are sick up, those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. 
And Father, we just lift um, this uh, year to you and continue to ask that you would work in and through us. Lord, that you would give us wisdom in these church planning endeavors, that you would give us wisdom as we enter into a new budget year. Uh, we need your wisdom as we uh, look to the purchase of this building. We need wisdom that you would raise up leaders and uh, more deacons and uh, those that are serving in this church. And so we ask for your help there. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your provision for this church, and we don't take it lightly. We ask for wisdom to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us, and we know that you've called us to go. We just need wisdom in which ways that we ought to do so, that you would raise up and burden the hearts of many to serve you, uh, not just in this area, but Lord, as you would see fit to the ends of the earth. And so we commit these things to you. Father, we thank you for this time as we settle our hearts and uh, open our ears to be expository listeners, that you would help us to hear your word, and Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts uh, through our brother Tim as he comes and shares with us this morning. We thank you for him and Cindy that they uh, have been able to meet us and get to know us over this last uh, few uh, quarters or few months in this last quarter, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, in these days um, as we seek wisdom from you in uh, a missional church plan in this area. And so, Father, help us, we pray, in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in your bulletin, you have a bio of uh, Tim and Cindy. Uh, I won't uh, read it so that you can, but uh, Tim and Cindy have been married for 45 years. They uh, have three children, and uh, through those uh, children and their families, they have 11 grandchildren. And uh, Tim and Cindy have been in ministry for just about four decades. So a lot of experience there, mainly in two churches in Florida. And uh, so there's a, a path of, of faithfulness there that the Lord has shown through Tim and Cindy's life. Uh, we do forgive Tim for being a Alabama fan, uh, but he is also passionate about Roll Tide. So we are thankful for his interest there as well. Uh, they uh, obviously have uh, just been introduced to us through a mutual friend uh, this spring, really, that Tim and I really were able to talk and uh, understand how like-minded we were. We feel like the Lord has worked this. Tim shared in Sunday school, if you weren't here, uh, you can listen to the recording and listen to his testimony and how God put all these things together to this day. So we're thankful t for Tim. Thank you, uh, Tim, for coming and preparing. And would you come bring the word of God to us? Good morning. It's good to, good to be here. Uh, I met a number of you during uh, Sunday school, but a number of you I didn't get the privilege of meeting. Uh, my name, as he mentioned, is Tim Bullington, and um, my wife, Cindy, 45 years, is back there. Uh, neck, wave, Cindy, so they'll see you, so I can embarrass you a little bit. But uh, she, uh, she, next to Jesus Christ, she's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life, and, uh, and I'm thankful to God for my wife. We have three children, 11 grandchildren. God's been good to us, and I'm glad to be here. Man, what a great time of worship this morning. Amen? Come on, it's okay to say that, right? I mean, the, the praise team did a phenomenal job. Thank you. Thank you uh, for leading us in God-exalting, uh, Christ-centered worship. And I'm very, very appreciative of the uh, efforts that they put forth to uh, lead us. 
for those of you who were paying attention to Kaysen's pastoral prayer last Sunday morning, uh, he prayed specifically for a mutual friend of ours. He didn't know that when he prayed for him, but he prayed for Kevin Brown, who's pastor of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Wilkesboro. It is probably the fastest growing church in Wilkes County. And uh, I, I reached out to Kevin this week, Kevin and I are friends, and, and uh, he said to thank you for your prayers and that he's confident that God is going to heal him. And uh, I've been praying for him every day, and I'm going to continue to pray for Kevin and for the elders there in Mount Pleasant. So thank you for uh, lifting him up. With no further ado, let's get into the Word of God this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I know you're used to turning to the first few pages of the Bible in Genesis, but we're going to be in Philippians 2 this morning, verses 1 through 11. Our primary focus is going to be on verses 5 through 11 as we consider the subject this morning, the incomparable Christ. The incomparable Christ. I want you to stand with me out of honor and reverence for God and His Word. Now, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version because I've been using it for a lot of years. It's not because I'm sold on it being the only translation or anything like that. I know a lot of you use the SV. I'll probably be switching to that soon, but for now, here's what we have. So listen to the Word of the Lord here from the heart and pen of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, and then ultimately to the gathering church this morning. He says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself." Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is eternal forever. Oh, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And Jesus himself said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And we're grateful that while the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God shall stand forever. And so I pray that today, Father, the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, that you will teach us principles from the Word of God today about our incomparable Savior, Jesus Christ, that there is no one like Him, never has been, and never will be. He has been exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And we bow at His feet today afresh and anew. I pray, Father, that today the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, to the end that Christ might be crowned 
as King and as Lord in every single heart and soul in this place today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. The passage of scripture that we have before us this morning, Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 11, with a primary focus on verses 5 through 11, is, is not only divinely inspired as every other verse in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 through Revelation 22-21 is, but it's also one of the most inspiring passages in the entire Word of God as well. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on this passage in, his, uh, in Philippians said this, and I quote, some scholars believe this passage was originally a hymn sung by early Christians to commemorate and celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. It has been called a Christological gem, a theological diamond that perhaps sparkles brighter than any other in Scripture. And you know, I wholeheartedly agree with Dr. MacArthur that this is a Christological gem, that you will not find a pa any other passage in the Word of God that really excels this one in terms of its Christology. And it's interesting to me that Paul uses the depths of this Christology in response to some potential disunity in the Philippian church. The Philippian church, if you know the letters to the New Testament pretty well, was a solid group of believers. It was a joy-filled church. Uh, the letter to the Philippians is one of the most joy-filled epistles in the entire Word of God. It was a generous church. Paul pointed out them and the other churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as being generous in their giving to the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, even when the Corinthian church, which was wealthy, uh, was very, very stingy in giving and reluctant to give. And so this church was part of that Macedonian group of churches is that joyfully and generously and sacrificially gave for the sacrifice of the kingdom. And, 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 and Paul uses this Christology to appeal to them, though, in the areas of unity and humility. You know, even though the uh, Philippian church was a solid church, a, a group of believers, we still need to understand that they were a group of fallen, redeemed sinners like us. Amen. I mean, they were just like us, and that means that they had to always be on guard against the wiles of the devil and to always be on the lookout for what he was trying to do to conquer and divide them. And so Paul played the ultimate trump card when it comes to humility among Christians and love among Christians and unity among Christians, and that trump card was none other than the incomparable Lord and Savior that we serve, and that's Jesus Christ. So today as we focus on this passage in Philippians 2, on the incomparable Christ. I want us to group it around three main thoughts today. First of all, we're going to see the incarnation of Jesus. And if you don't know what that means, we're going to explore the depths of that God taking on human flesh. Secondly, we're going to shift to the humiliation of Jesus. And then we're going to close out with the exaltation of Jesus. Are you ready to dive into God's word? Say aloud, amen. All right, let's get into the Word of God. Let's look, first of all, at the incarnation of Jesus. Back up, if you would, to the context. I think we all know that text without context is pretext. You need to understand the context in order to properly understand the text. So let's back up to the context in verses 1 through 4 and see how Paul led into this Christological goldmine. He said, Therefore, 
If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You can see that Paul was concerned about this church. In fact, if you read further on in chapter 4, he even called out to members of that body, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord toward one another. So there was the threat of disunity in that church. There was the threat of them not really loving one another like they should and not having that humble uh, spirit instead of a prideful spirit. And so Paul uh, uses this trump card of the incarnation of Christ to appeal to them. Kenneth Wiest, in his word studies in the Greek New Testament, picked up on this theme, and here's what he had to say. He said, that which Paul speaks of as being in the mind of Christ and which the Philippians were to include in their own spiritual lives consisted of a spirit of humility and self-abnegation and an interest in the welfare of others. These graces were illustrated in our Lord's act of becoming incarnate in the human race and becoming the substitutionary atonement for sin. This lack of unity among the Philippian saints became the occasion for perhaps the greatest Christological passage in the New Testament that sounds the depths of the incarnation. And here's where Paul begins in verse 5 to unfold to us this mystery of the incarnation of God taking on human flesh. And so let's walk through it piece by piece. Look at verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's appealing to their humility. Uh, he's appealing to their unity by using the example of Christ himself. And look what he begins to say about the person of Christ. He says, first of all, in verse 6, who being in the form of God. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word morphe. And the word morphe doesn't mean outward appearance like we typically think that it would but it literally means the innermost, it literally means the outward expression of his innermost character. In other words, Jesus was, is, and always shall be God. And it's important that we understand that, that Jesus was God and the expression of God being in him and him being God took, it out, took on the form on the outside of him. Does that make sense? And so he was in the form of God. But listen to what else it says. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The literal rendering of this is he did not consider it his prerogative to co-reign and co-rule with God the Father, but it, which is something he had done for all of eternity past, right? He had reigned with God the Father for all of eternity past, and yet Jesus did a stupendous thing. He was willing to let go of that. He didn't consider his equality with the Father something to be held onto and grasp at all costs, but he was willing to let it go. It's absolutely amazing condescension. What a contrast between Jesus and us, right? I mean, we get power, and what do we want to do? We want to hold on to it. And we want to hold on to it until the day we die, and they're going to have to pry it out of our cold, dead fingers. But Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son, was willing to leave heaven and come to earth and, and leave the prerogative of co-reigning with God the Father. I mean, who does that? I'll tell you who did it. Jesus did. Amen? 
Jesus did that for us. And so thank God for that. But let's keep going because it gets even deeper here about Christ. It says, who being in the form of God, thought it, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The literal translation of this is that he emptied himself. It comes from the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty. And Jesus emptied himself when he left heaven and came to earth. Now, this begs the question of what did Jesus empty himself? Because I think that needs to be answered because trust me, there's a lot of people who have handled this passage and they've gone all kinds of different ways with this when it talks about Jesus emptying himself. So let's kind of set the record straight. First of all, negatively speaking, Jesus did not empty himself of the possession of his deity. He did not empty himself of the possession of his deity. That needs to be said because there's people who teach that. They teach that Jesus was a mere human being, but he did not empty himself of the possession of his deity. He was still very much God while he was on this earth. Let me ask you a question. How did he cause blind people to see? You know what the Bible says in John 9 when he healed the man born blind? The scripture says when he healed the man born blind, remember it just blew all the circuits of the religious leaders and, and the young man who had previously been born blind, who was over 30 years of age, had been blind all of his life, can now see. He looked at the religious leaders and said, what, do you want to become his disciples also? Is that why you're asking about this? And you know what the scripture says in John 9? John commented on this. He said that this had never been done in the history of the world. You know why? Because God in the flesh had not shown up until he showed up in Jesus Christ. How did Jesus cause deaf people to hear? How did Jesus cause lame men to walk? How did Jesus take lepers? Leprosy was an incurable disease. How did he make their flesh like that of babies? How did he speak to the wind and the waves and the wind and the waves obeyed him? How did he walk on water for crying out loud? How did he take a small boy's lunch of five loaves of bread and two fish and feed 5,000 people and have 12 baskets of fragments left over? How did he on three occasions raise people from the dead? Jairus' daughter, the widow's son at Nain, and Lazarus in John chapter 11. How did he do that? I'll tell you how he did it. Because he was Emmanuel, God with us. He was God with us. Amen? Amen? He was God with us. And, and so he did not empty himself of the possession of his deity. But let me tell you what he did do. He did empty himself of the full expression of his deity, clothing it in the garb of human flesh. You know, we sing that at Christmas time. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing. What does he say in that? In one of those verses, he goes, uh, uh, veiled uh, in that in that in the garb of human flesh. We're, we're veiled in flesh. The Godhead see hail incarnate deity. Well, that's what Jesus did. He chose to garb that Shekinah glory that he had shared with the Father for all of eternity past in the robe of human flesh while he was here on this earth. And aren't you glad that he did? Because no one would have been made able to stand in his presence if he would have been shining in that full Shekinah glory that he had with the Father before he left heaven and came to earth. The two most notable exceptions to that, and you probably already know this, his transfiguration when he took Peter, James, and John with him aside 
and he and, and all of a sudden he's shining in all of his glory. Can you imagine what that was like for Peter, James, and John? By the way, as glorious as that was, Peter, when he later wrote his epistles, said that we have a more sure word of prophecy, even in what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that more sure word of prophecy is our Bibles. We don't have to see Jesus in all of his glory on a mountain to know that he's real. We see him right here in the word of God. And the other exception would have been in his glorified, resurrected body. But outside of that, Jesus, Jesus chose to limit the full expression of his glory in that garb of human, in, of human flesh. But let's keep going. Look at, look at the end of verse 7. It says that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or of a slave, as your translation may say, which is accurate as well. Jesus' outward appearance on this earth was not as a sovereign. Jesus' outward appearance on this earth was a servant. Jesus had a servant's heart. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. This is how Jesus operated during the course of his life. When he was born, did he come down a golden staircase and walk into a mansion? And the answer is what? No, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals and wrapped in strips of cloth. That's, that's an inauspicious debut for one who is king of kings and lord of lords, but that's exactly what he did. So, so Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant. You know, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and you'll hear me say that a lot because I got a lot of them. I say it a lot. I love the Word of God. How about you? One of my favorite images of Jesus is the night before the cross in John chapter 13. He's in the upper room. Now, if you piece the chronology of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, and it's necessary to do that because they each kind of give differing accounts, but they all merge together as one harmonious unit, you've got, you've got these accounts, and, and you kind of piece together what happened, and, and here's basically what happened. Jesus gathered his men in the upper room, and he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper with them, right? Well, the scripture tells us in Luke's gospel, it's something that no one else I don't think records, that after the institution of the sacredness of the supper, the disciples got in an argument about who was the greatest in the kingdom. And they're in the presence of Jesus when they're doing it. And, and Jesus, you know, I, now listen, I know this is not in the word, but I, I'm kind of thinking he's just sitting there going, <laughs> kind of sitting there, you know, okay, guys. When you're going to get through. And you know what he did, don't you? You know what he did in John 13. He took aside his outer garment and laid it over to the side. And he took a, a pan of water and a towel. And he went around the room and started washing their nasty, dirty feet. You know what that was the job of? A slave. A slave was supposed to do that. They honestly should have been doing it for one another. But Jesus, the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, got down on his hands and knees and started washing their feet. And you know what? I hope that water scalded their feet, don't you? <laughs> because of their selfishness and because of their focus on themselves and not on the one whom they were in the presence of, Jesus Christ. There was no greater picture of his servanthood than what happened that night with him washing his feet, except maybe the next day, 
when he went to the cross and died for his sheep. What a savior we have in Jesus Christ. And then notice the next phrase on this incarnation of Jesus, that he, that he took upon himself the form of a bondservant or slave and coming in the likeness of men. That's the incarnation of Jesus, God taking on human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, becoming the Son of Man. The incarnation means two great truths before we move into the second point of this message. Here's number one, that God became man. That God, the incarnation means that God became man. Uh, this is something that no mortal man can possibly comprehend because you and I exist in one dimension, right? We, do, we, we exist in this human dimension, but yet Jesus, fully God, came down here and took upon full humanity, yet without sin, without any mixture kind of of the two, without any tainting of the two, if you would, or especially the divine being tainted by the human. He did it without sin. But here's Jesus, fully God and fully human. It's known in theological circles as the the hypostatic union of Christ, that Jesus was so much God as if he was not man at all, and he was so much man as if he was not God at all. He was the God man. And I don't know about you, Scott, but I can't figure that out. When I can't figure that out, case, and I can't wrap my mind around that because I exist only as a human being who's been born again by the Spirit of God. But Jesus was fully God and fully human in the incarnation. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, again, commenting on this, said this, His deity did not make him more nor less than a man, and his humanity did not make him less than absolute deity. I'm going to read that again. His deity did not make him more nor less than a man, and his humanity did not make him less than absolute deity. Or as one preacher of bygone days said, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Man, that's great. The, the, the incarnation means the Son of God became man. So it means, number one, God became man. But secondly, it means this, and we must never forget this as Bible-believing Baptist in the Reformed faith is that it means that God came down to man. Listen, beloved, here at the gathering, the gospel isn't for the world so love God that he gave his only begotten son. What is the gospel? Come on, say it with me. For God so loved the world. Come on, let me hear you up here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He did not give his son to a world that loved him. He sent his son into a world that hated God and hated Christ. He was despised and rejected by men. And praise God, God sent him anyway and Jesus came anyway. So the incarnation, God became man the incarnation, God came down to man. Listen, the heart of the gospel, Romans 5, 8, isn't that man commended his love toward God in such a way that God sent his son. The heart of the gospel is, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God for the incarnation. God becoming man and God coming down to man. It illustrates the great difference between religion and Christianity. We all know the difference, right? You know what religion is? Religion is man reaching up to God. You know what Christianity is? Christianity is God reaching down to man. Religion is man trying to work his way up to God. 
Christianity is God coming down to man in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't just have religion. I have a religion with a covenant relationship at the heart of it, and that is with Almighty God through his son, Jesus Christ. Thank God for the gospel of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. So God came down to man, God coming, becoming man. But let's look at a second truth, and that's the humiliation of Jesus. Keep following along with me if you would. Let's go down to verse 8. He says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So we move from the incarnation of Jesus to the humiliation of Jesus. And there's two crucial aspects of the humiliation of Jesus that I want you to see. Number one is this, that no one took his life from him. Amen? No one took Christ's life from him. Did you see the language that Paul used here deliberately? He said that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. In other words, Jesus voluntarily, and this blows me away, voluntarily and vicariously laid down his life on the cross of Calvary. How many of us understand that death could have never overtaken Jesus had he not succumbed to it voluntarily? When he was on the cross, what did he say? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus voluntarily released his, relinquished his own spirit into the hands of God the Father. No one took Christ's life from him. Now, in order to back that up, I want you to hold Philippians 2, and I want you to turn to two of the Gospels, Matthew and John. So if you would, hold, hold Philippians 2, because we're going to still be there. But I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to pick it up in verse 47. Matthew 26, 47 through 54. And I want you to see this. I'm going to read it and then go back and make a little bit of comment on it. Are you still with me? All right, here we go. Matthew 26, 47. And while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen like this, that it must happen thus? You, now look at this. Jesus has just finished praying, sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's outside the garden, and all of a sudden he's approached by this motley crew led by one of his former disciples, Judas Iscariot. And Judas comes in, identifies Jesus with a kiss on the bloodstained cheek of Jesus, and, and they arrest Jesus, and they start to take him away. Well, Peter... You know Peter had to be from Western North Carolina because he turned it into a midnight redneck brawl. Amen? And, and Peter pulls out that dagger of his, and he cuts off one of Malchus's ears. And Jesus told Peter, he said, put your sword up. 
One of the other uh, gospels says, put your sword, you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he graciously put Malchus's ear back on, which is something Mike Tyson didn't do for, for Evander Holyfield when he fought him, okay? For those of you that know about the fight, okay, I'll, I'll move on. All right. Some of you will get that maybe on the way home. But he put his ear back on, and then he said, remember what he said to Peter? He said, Peter, and he said it to the rest of the men, don't you know that right now, I could call 12 legions of angels to my rescue. A legion is 6,000. He said, I could call 72,000 angels to rescue me. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that it has to happen like this, right? So, so that's, that's one proof that no one took Jesus's life from him. He voluntarily laid it down. But here's a second proof. Turn to John chapter 10. Turn to John chapter 10. Some of you know where I'm going before I even get there with this. But listen to John 10. Let's look at verses 11 through 18. And let's let the word minister to our hearts. What a phenomenal passage of Scripture. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own as the father knows me. Even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now listen to verses 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus voluntarily and vicariously laid down his life for the sheep. No one took Christ's life from him. Aren't you glad about that? That he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But let me tell you one further truth on the, on the humiliation of Jesus. It's not only that no one took his life from him, but it's this, his death was by divine design. Folks, you already know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The cross was never plan B. You can be in some churches and they'll uh, try to convince you that the cross was plan B, that God intended for Jesus to come down here and, and be enthroned in Jerusalem and set up some kind of geopolitical earthly kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, he's going to do that at his second coming. But his first coming wasn't to set up as a king in Jerusalem. His first coming was to die on a cross in Jerusalem for sinners like you and I. And thank God that he did. Uh, there was never an alternative plan. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I can't wrap my mind around that. I can't fully comprehend what it means for Christ to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But I have figured this much out. He apparently, in the inner Trinitarian council of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed that at some time out in the future, God the Son and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would leave heaven, come to earth, take upon human flesh, yet without sin, and he would go to the cross, and he would suffer and bleed and die for his sheep. 
Thank God for that, amen? And, and here's what blows me away about this, folks. And I'm going to laundry list some things for you that, that really just blow me away. Jesus knew everything that he was coming into. He knew what he was walking into, and yet he left heaven and came to earth anyway. Just take these things in, for instance, and this is not an exhaustive list. He knew he'd be despised and rejected by men. He came anyway. He knew he'd be beaten, mocked, and spat upon. He came anyway. He knew he'd have his beard plucked out, Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, and his back scourged, leaving him where you couldn't even recognize who he was or that he was even human. He came anyway. That was a fulfillment, by the way, of Isaiah 52, 14. He knew that he'd have a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. He came anyway. He knew he'd have his arms and legs jerked out of joint, fulfillment of one of the verses in Psalm 22. He'd have nails driven through his hands and feet, fulfillment of Psalm 22. And he'd be left to die like a criminal on a cross, and he came anyway. He knew that one of his men would betray him, that was Judas. One of his men would deny him three times, that was Peter. One would doubt him after his resurrection, that was Thomas. And all of them would forsake him and flee at his arrest, and he came anyway. He knew that he'd become sin for us on that cross and fulfill Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there would be a temporary breach between he and the Father as he became sin for us on that cross, and he came anyway. He knew that there would be more who would reject him than receive him. He came anyway. And listen to me, here's what really hurts my heart. He knew that those of us who repent and trust him would far more often be faithless, foolish, and fickle in our lives, even after claiming to love him. And he came anyway. What a savior. Amen? What a savior. No wonder Philip Bliss, Philip Bliss didn't even live to be 40 years of age, died in his 38th year on this planet. But he wrote that great hymn, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God, was he full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted on high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But it gets even better. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring then anew, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The incarnation, the incarnation of Jesus. The, the humiliation of Jesus that, that no one took his life from him and that his death was by divine design coming into this world knowing that it would hate him and reject him and nail him to a cross. I'm going to ask you this and then we're going to move on. How many of you would leave and walk out into this parking lot right now if you knew some type of similar fate awaited you when you walked out this door? You'd sit here the rest of your life, right? Or you'd call the cops or something or go out the back. But Jesus knew it and came anyway. What a phenomenal, incomparable Savior we have in Christ. But let's look finally, and I know you're glad to hear that word finally. Here's, we've seen the incarnation of Jesus. 
We've seen the humiliation of Jesus, but let's look at the exaltation of Jesus. And there's two thoughts here. First of all, Almighty God blessing His Son. Look at verse 9. Notice how verse 9 starts out. Therefore, now if you know your Bible hermeneutics, you know that whenever therefore is there, you have to ask why the therefore is therefore or what it's there for. And it always means in light of what's previously been said. And what has been previously said, that Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul is saying in light of all Jesus did, here's what God did for his son. Therefore, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Man, what a Savior. Amen? Given him a name that's above every name, exalted him. How did God exalt his son? Well, first of all, he exalted him when he raised him from the dead. You see, that's the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. All other world religions serve someone who either is dead or dying or is going to die. Christianity serves one who was dead and is alive and who lives forevermore. He's alive. God raised him from the dead, exalted him out of that grave, but it goes even better than that. Forty days after his resurrection, showing himself alive by many infallible proofs according to Acts chapter 1, God took his son and raised him up through the heavens. Jesus ascended up through the realm of principalities and powers of the air. He went up to heaven and he took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm just paraphrasing, so you'll have to forgive me. But he said, son, sit here at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. <laughs> and Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father. It is finished, paid in full. He's been lifted far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. There is no one higher or more honorable than Jesus Christ. No one. God highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. Now, I don't have time to, to really go down that road, but it's something to think about that there's a definite article there that God has given him the name which is above every name, which tends to lend itself to the thought that it may not just be the name of Jesus because the, his name Jesus was his name during his humiliation. But remember, he tells us in Revelation that he's going to give unto us his new name. Now, I don't know, but I'm just telling you this, that at the name, some translations say at the name belonging to Jesus, but at the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, he goes on to tell us what's going to happen. So it's Almighty God blessing His Son, but then look at this. It's all men bowing before His Son. Look at verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should what? Say it out loud. Bow. Of, and then he goes on to make sure that we understand that it's all-encompassing. He says, first of all, those in heaven. The angels bow in heaven, and they don't have any problem with it. The 24 elders bow. In fact, in Revelation 4, what do they do? They cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. They don't have any trouble bowing. Uh, the, the redeemed, those redeemed who are in heaven, are, have no trouble bowing. No one in heaven has, has any trouble bowing at the feet of Jesus Christ, right? But then he goes on and he says, of those on earth. Now, the redeemed, those of us in here, most of us are redeemed. 
We don't have any trouble bowing at the feet of Jesus, right? Some people in our world are having problems with that. But trust me, he's going to clear that up pretty soon. <laughs> I don't know when he's coming back, but he's going to clear that up when he comes back. Uh, so, so those in heaven, those on earth, and then he goes on, of those under the earth. You say, you mean to tell me that uh, the devil and the demons of hell and fallen angels and all of that are going to bow at the feet of Jesus? That's exactly what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that every knee shall bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Keep going with me. And that every tongue should confess, say it with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to I clear up something here as I wind down on this message. This is not promoting universalism. Do you understand that? This is not saying that everyone's going to be saved. There are people who believe that. There are people in our pulpits across America today that are teaching this nonsense, and it's a lie from the pits of hell. Not everyone is going to be saved. Listen, if everyone is going to be saved, then we might as well pack up shop and go home. There's no reason for us to be here today. But we're here today because we believe that there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, and the only way to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through Christ alone. This isn't teaching universalism, but it is teaching universal acknowledgement of Christ and his lordship, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And the word that Paul uses here for confess is stronger than the word where it typically means just to say the same thing. It's in a stronger form, meaning that they are without a doubt going to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I want you to think about this for a few minutes. Think about every person who ever has lived, is living, or shall live, bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about all the way back to Adam and all of the rulers of the world. Think about the pharaohs particularly the ones who opposed God's people, Israel, even getting out of Exodus, getting and making the Exodus out of Egypt, brother, is what I meant to say. Can you imagine them bowing at the feet of Jesus Christ where they're going to? Can you imagine all of the kings of Israel? And by the way, none of the kings of the northern kingdom were godly, and only eight of the 20 kings of the southern kingdom were godly. But every one of those kings who were supposed to be after the heart of God because they were shepherding God's chosen people, they're going to bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it's going to be when every queen who ever walked on this soil bows at the feet of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the dictators and the despots who have sprinkled this land going all the way back to Adam are going to bow at the feet of Jesus Christ? They thought they were gods here on this earth, and they're going to bow before the God of heaven who is Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when Adolf Hitler bows at the feet of Jesus Christ? Benito Mussolini Idi Amin, Pol Pot in his killing fields in Cambodia, Ayatollah Khomeini, Anwar Sadat. You've got all of these, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein, all of them are going to bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every president of this country, regardless of their party, whether they were Republican, Democrat, or nothing, shout out to George Washington are going to bow 
at the feet of Jesus Christ. Every one of them. And it's not going to matter then whether they were red or blue or purple. Amen? It's going to matter whether they knew Christ or not. Every one of them are going to bow before the feet of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine all of the athletes and celebrities and people that are in the worldwide focus right now that just drip with pride? They're not going to be dripping with pride on this day, but they're going to be shaking with fear when they bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. All of the unsaved and unredeemed going all the way back to Adam are going to bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. Think about what it's going to be like for church members who were churched but unredeemed. And Jesus even hinted at that, did he not, in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. And they're going to say to him, haven't we done many wonderful things in your name? Haven't we cast out demons in your name? Haven't we prophesied or preached in your name? I never knew you depart from me, you that work iniquity. They're going to bow before the feet of Jesus Christ and then be cast into eternal hell. And listen to me, folks, because this is where it hits home for us. Every redeemed child of God is going to bow and confess before Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. And I hope we don't mind doing that, but we're going to. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've got three points of application and I'm through. Here's number one. To the unsaved who may be in attendance today or may be hearing this either now or down the road, I urge you to repent of your sins and turn to Christ and trust him. Because trust me, it's better to bow now than it is to bow later. Amen? It's better to bow now. Because you will bow later. You need to bow now at the feet of Christ in repentance and faith. As some of the old time religionists used to say, put all your good works in one pile and put all of your sins in another and turn your back on both of them and make a beeline for the cross. Run to the feet of Jesus Christ. Number two, to those of us who are saved, I urge us to bow afresh and anew at the feet of Jesus Christ and to put on the mind of Christ. Because if we put on the mind of Christ, we won't be filled with pride and we won't be filled with hate and we won't be filled with disunity, but we will be filled with humility and love and unity, a fervent love for one another. Because when you're in love with Jesus, it affects your attitude, your actions, and your affections. And so I urge you to turn your attitudes, actions, and affections Christward, heavenward, and focus on Christ. And in my final point of application is this, thank God for his incomparable son, Jesus Christ. What a savior we have in Jesus. Incarnation, humiliation, exaltation. To God alone be the glory through his son, Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing me the wonderful opportunity, glorious privilege to share the unsearchable riches of Christ. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And I thank you, Father, that there is coming a day of universal acclamation of your son, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it in fear, others will do it in faith, but everyone will do it. So I pray that we would afresh and anew bow at the feet of Christ and just acknowledge him as Lord and Savior 
and sovereign and king. To you alone, God, is all the glory, honor, and praise now and forevermore through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.